Hi, this is Edward Tenner, author of The Efficiency Paradox, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. Have you ever thought that a KPI or quality metric, either at work or in your personal life, was hurting more than helping a situation? I know I have, especially when it's been taken out of context, and which is why I'm so excited to share this discussion with Edward Tenner, author of The Efficiency Paradox, with you now. Be sure to listen for his explanation of the tyranny of metrics and Campbell's Law about three quarters of the way through, and you'll be better equipped to make the case when you suspect that efficiency has been pushed too far. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Edward Tenner. Edward is a distinguished scholar at the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation and a visiting scholar at the Rutgers University Department of History. His essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, the Wilson Quarterly, and Forbes.com. And he has given talks for many organizations, including AT&T, Intel, IDEO, Microsoft, and a TED Talk. His book, Why Things Bite Back, Technology and the Revenge of Unintended Consequences, has been an international bestseller translated into Chinese, German, Japanese, and other languages. We're here to discuss his most recent book, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. Welcome, Edward. Thank you very much. Say, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? The people that I remember most from my elementary school, especially, were the school librarians. And these people, they were all women, they were really so devoted to learning, to reading, to the book as an object. And they, they socialized me into the love of books and into the love of reading. It's very sad that so few schools, at least in my part of the country, now still have school librarians. But I still remember, for example, learning the correct way to open a book, how to fold down the pages. They inspired you by teaching you to care and respect for books and encourage your love of learning. Edward, describe your work today. What's your focus and how do you create value in the marketplace? I'm a writer who is not a scientist, not an engineer, but I'm really an opinion writer and interpreter. And what I try to do is to use what I've learned in history to bring more clarity to current issues, to give people a longer-term perspective in thinking about contemporary issues, uh, to remind them of uh, the fact that a lot of the challenges we face aren't that new, that people in the past very often felt just as perplexed. You can trace concerns about information overload at least to the 18th century, if not before. And once people understand that historical background, I think they have more confidence in dealing with the present. So where do you get your inspiration and perspectives to consider today? In a typical week, give me a breakdown of how much time you spend talking to colleagues, reading blogs or online journals, watching or listening to videos and podcasts and so on. The basis of what I do really is to to look at things in real time as you know, as a historian, I was used to the great difficulty of, of really 
tracking what was happening uh, month by month, year by year in the past, and sometimes it was difficult to go back and and read that material. Well, here it's it's all kind of coming at me, and so I'm I'm really kind of sitting in the middle of it and and trying to uh, trying to make sense of it. And then I also will save the articles. I will download the the articles I've subscribed to, and I'll attach tags to them so that using a special software that I have, I will um, index things. I can go back to articles instead of wondering, gee, I read something about that some time ago. So that's that's a large part of what I do. But there's another part that consists of, of going to events on the Princeton campus and other institutions, uh, meeting people, having lunch with academics, with visiting speakers, uh, visiting museum exhibitions in New York and Philadelphia and Washington. And again, I'm always with a notebook. I'm uh, keeping my eye on ideas that I might be able to use in the future. So you could you could think of this as a kind of continuous one-person R&D laboratory. In the book, you define efficiency as providing goods, providing services or information, or processing transactions with a minimum of waste. What makes this a useful lens for examining the issues as you describe them? My point in the efficiency paradox isn't that there's something really wrong with efficiency. I believe in it. We are where we are because people were concerned about more efficient operations. Certainly in light of the world's environment, we need more efficient technology. So I'm not against efficiency at all. The point of the book is that too much focus on, on short-term efficiency can make us less efficient in the long run. And and so I'm urging people to carve out a space for what I call inspired inefficiency without losing sight of efficiency itself as a goal. Can you give me an example of what inspired inefficiency might look like? Well, inspired inefficiency sometimes is breaking a lot of rules in in the interest of, of finding some kind of, of new product or business. Uh, uh, one favorite example is how many of the most influential books in history have initially been adversely reviewed. For example, uh, Huckleberry Finn, uh, Moby Dick. Uh, these often have been books that have really changed literature, changed styles of writing, changed outlook. So when they appear, at first, people don't really understand them. They they are reading them through the lens of of their experience. But then, as time goes on, people start to to get them. They they start to see what makes them great, and they start to influence other books. So, if for example, publishers at the time had an artificial intelligence program that determined what people liked in a book, uh, and if all publishers used them, those books might not have been published at all. As it turns out, many best-selling books in our own time have been refused by a dozen or more publishers. What you're really doing is looking at and saying, we do have one of those um, engines now, it's called Amazon, and you could see what the most popular and highest rated books are that have been published within a particular geography. But you'll miss, what you're saying is that you would miss, if you only looked at that, you would miss what's what Kevin Kelly calls is the long tail, which are valuable works that are published that might not receive popular acclaim early on in its lifespan. There is also the issue that Amazon 
By the way, I have nothing necessarily against Amazon because Amazon was really very good to my book, Why Things Bite Back. It was when it was published, it was way, way up there. I think it was number 40, along with some of the Dilbert books. So Amazon gave me a tremendous boost in the early days. But I think that too much reliance on Amazon means that it's very easy for somebody to get into a groove and to have lots of things recommended that are sort of like what they've had before. And it's it's a much greater challenge to to look at something else that's really completely different that 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 might have a greater appeal. And one of the things I think that Steve Jobs was able to do was to visualize how something that was was really unfamiliar could could have this uh, this tremendous appeal, even though people didn't really understand uh, how much they would how much they would want it once it was there. It's interesting. I, I follow what you're saying with that because it's common to us in hindsight. Thomas Watson in 1943 said that, that he thought that there was a world market for maybe five computers. Who was a Daryl Zanuck at 20th Century Fox in 1946, right at the advent of television, said, well, TV wouldn't be able to hold on to any market captures after the first six months. People soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. These are people who are too close to it to actually appreciate the impact over a long period of time. And what you're saying is, is that we've, if we place too much emphasis on early results, we may miss longer range benefits. So I, I think of when reading The Efficiency Paradox, I kept having in mind a simple chart called an inflection point. I kept thinking, up oh, here we are coming up on another inflection point where efficiency is good up to a point, but then further efficiency towards that aim is less valuable. What are some other examples of where people may find that efficiency beyond a certain point becomes less productive and less valuable? There are programs now that attempt to screen applicants for jobs on the basis of their resumes, and they're very widely used in the corporate sector. But there is a problem with them because although they may be very efficient at identifying the people who have recently been most successful in this job. They make the assumption that the demands of the job are going to continue indefinitely and that the, the people that thus whose backgrounds have been ideal for the present requirements of the job will be able to be the best people in the future. And it's possible that that's so, but because things are changing so rapidly, there's also the possibility that you will need other qualities and skills and personality, or rather that you'll need a mix, a greater mix, a greater diversity of personalities, just as companies need to have uh, diversity of, of people's backgrounds. Uh, they also need to have a, a kind of diversity of skills and mentalities. One of the things that I think small business owners listening to this ought to take away from it is that it's fine to employ some of these algorithms in helping to, to winnow a field, to come down to candidates, for instance, but to not be closed to discussing the opportunity with people who might not have all the boxes checked. That's right. I have a, there's a concept that I, that I use in the book of peripheral vision. So most of the time we're, we're really looking directly at things, but sometimes we, we see, actually see things, and astronomers use this, we can actually see certain kinds of things, certain kinds of motion 
uh, better by not looking directly at them, by, by using our, our peripheral vision. And the same thing is true in organizations. Sometimes you, you, focus is very, very good, but you need to use that peripheral vision. You need to use intuition to recognize somebody who might be an exception. Another example that, that occurred to me of this was a, was a case in Connecticut in which the uh, police departments were using an intelligence test and one of the things that they were doing was eliminating officer, police officer candidates who scored too high on the test. And the reason was that those people tended to leave the department early. In the short run, you could say this was a very rational decision. Turnover is very expensive for police departments. You, you want officers who will stay and become experienced. But you could look at it another way, too. You could say that the fact that these men and women were, were leaving early might be a clue to the need to create more opportunities for more intelligent and resourceful people. Uh, maybe if you change some management policies, those people might make a, a great contribution to the force, that they could be, in fact, really helpful in improving the, the overall level of service. But my point isn't that turnover isn't a valid concern. It's just that sometimes if you focus too much on the algorithm, you're overlooking the opportunities for creative change. I think that that's very true in an age where analytics and data are more plentiful and more available, especially analysis tools are more available than ever before. And it's good to be able to have metrics and goals and to seek to optimize different processes and you know, achieve your targets that are, measure, that are measurable. The danger, of course, is letting that become the driver rather than the tool or the indicator of progress. One of the, the cases that really uh, affects probably every small business out there is the ubiquitousness of uh, Google. And you call Google's PageRank one of the most powerful algorithms of all time. What's your basis for that? Well, the PageRank is now just a part of the Google algorithm. And the Google algorithm now is so complex as a result of the use of so-called machine learning in which a, uh, an artificial intelligence program is set to to modify itself uh, as time goes on by, by looking at results and, and changing accordingly. So the people who actually set it in motion may not fully understand how it's working or the, the results that it's giving. But since so many people have confidence that whatever's happening in this black box of the Google algorithm is actually ranking things by, by some kind of objective standard, very few people will look beyond the first page of results and, and many people will just go for the first result or two. In order to, to really know what links to click, you, you really need the knowledge that you're using Google to, to, to try to find. One of my arguments is that people, students in the schools really have to become much more sophisticated as, as Google users. They, they need to know more about the quirks of how things are ranked and they need to develop a kind of intuition for what looks like a good result and what looks like a uh, fake result. Sure, and I think that you're also encouraging people to look into the advanced features so that you're searching for things that are returning valuable returns and valuable results 
based upon what your goal is at a particular point in time. Yes, that's right. I think for, for someone who is in, uh, in business, I can tell you from my own experience that one of the most powerful things in, in getting more attention with Google is affiliating yourself with a site that itself is getting a lot of results. So what I found, for example, after launching my own uh, home page, was that it was appearing very slowly when people were searching for my name. And I thought that was that was strange because I would, would have thought that the algorithm would have gone first for a site that somebody had established for themselves. But Google didn't work that way. But at the time, I was a blogger for The Atlantic. It was a new program that they had. And one of the things I discovered was that because The Atlantic site got a lot of traffic and a lot of other sites linked to it and linked to my blog posts for The Atlantic, my homepage was going up and up and until finally it was the the first thing that, that appeared when, when people were looking. So for me, although I'm no longer a regular blogger for The Atlantic, for me that was a really, really important step. It was it was really to to uh, to hitch my wagon to this to this uh, through this site. So what I think is is can be very useful for people is to is to look for some kind of very well established site and find a relationship with it. We talked earlier about looking carefully and being clear as to what your objectives are when using Google as a search engine ranking. I think that one of the the laws known as Campbell's law talks about how measuring a behavior affects the behavior that you're actually measuring. Can you talk about how that might skew results in an age of big data, maybe related to searching, but it probably has larger implications? Yeah, Campbell's law is just that when you when you are when you are measuring a behavior and using that as a criterion for something, you are changing people's actions and sometimes changing them in a way that defeats your measuring them. For example, corporate managers have many ways to to choose accounting systems in, in public companies and, and they can sometimes uh, choose legitimate ways that will maximize the uh, corporate profits and maximize their their profit sharing while creating longer term problems for the company and 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 the stockholders so these are these are very well known problems and they they figured for example into some of the uh, financial uh, scandals of the, the the 1990s and early early 21st century so there's a problem too in uh, in academia for example if professors are rewarded for the number of citations or for publishing in certain journals then people will will sometimes really change their research in a way that doesn't necessarily benefit the research in the long run but that results in in more citations in the short run in fact there's a book about this recently published called the tyranny of metrics so i didn't i didn't really uh, get into that because it had been covered uh, very well there but it it's it's a big factor so one thing to keep in mind is that that when you're when you're evaluating anything based on on metrics it really pays to see uh, what kinds of compromises might have been taken and we understand that in business as well if somebody says there are bonuses coming if we launch this product or service by a particular date if everyone knows that's going to be the case there are times when it can increase productivity and increase the quality of what's being done 
However, there are other times when shortcuts could take place and the product that launches may just have fewer features or a lower standard of quality in order to receive the bonus. And I think that's what we're looking to make people aware of because it's not only people operating under those metrics, but everyone listening out there might be having a hand in setting those metrics. And if you are thoughtful about setting those metrics with this in mind, you could set better metrics that counterbalance each other to make sure that you're putting things out that are of quality and not compromising on crucial issues. So Edward, another area that's of great concern is medicine. And medicine has is an area where they strive for efficiency and there are a lot of forces that are contributing to medicine being looked at very carefully with controlling costs and improving the efficacy of treatments. However, isn't it true that there are also risks inherent with that approach, such as getting false positives? Yes, there are a lot of problems in the feedback of medical efficiency on the behavior of both patients and physicians. Uh, one case is of, of self-monitoring. There are a lot of people who are very strong believers in self-monitoring, and, and uh, I'm sure there are listeners who have a Fitbit or, or other uh, other self-monitoring technology, and I'm not necessarily against it, but in the book I cite some of the problems that have, have occurred uh, because psychologists have discovered, for example, that when something is done because of a reward, an external reward, it becomes less enjoyable than when it's done for its own sake. So somebody who has an exercise program and is monitoring it, let's say, with a with a device, some studies have found that people are more likely to to discontinue it because it becomes a kind of burden uh, rather than something that that, uh, that that they enjoy. So it's possible, I'm not saying it's inevitable, but it's possible for that to backfire. There's another kind of uh, problem in the uh, false positives of genetics uh, and of, of medical devices. So in, in a lot of cases, uh, someone may receive a, uh, an indication that they are genetically susceptible to, to this or that disease. And, and sometimes this, uh, this can be a kind of a corrosive form of knowledge. Uh, in other cases, it, it, it might lead to a constructive step, so I'm not against it. But my point is just that there is a, there is a real risk that that can backfire. Uh, people in, uh, in hospital safety have been especially aware of the risks of medical alarms. And in many hospitals, uh, devices uh, produce so many continuous alarms that there is a temptation to turn them off or to disregard them. So something that seems to be a life-saving and a very desirable uh, part of a technology, a, a signal that something is going wrong, if taken to an extreme, can become a danger to health. And what can people do if they're maybe planning to go in for a, a surgery in order to minimize that risk of the staff being overwhelmed with alarms? What types of conversations or questions can be asked in order to make sure that you improve the effectiveness of the medical care you're receiving rather than you know, be part of the system that's looking to maximize its efficiency or minimize the types of interruptions and annoyances that staff might be um, subject to? Well, there isn't that much that a lay person can typically do 
directly to uh, to address those. So the the point of contact uh, needs to be the the surgeon and the and the surgeon's uh, staff. So the most important thing for me in in medicine is to be sure that the style of the doctor that you're working with is a style that you are comfortable with. Well, Edward Tenner, you've shared so many great ideas with us on my quest for the best. I want to thank you for sharing what it was like in the early lessons you learned from librarians that carry through to today, talking about how there's nothing really wrong with efficiency per se. It's just that when it's pushed beyond the point where it's useful, that it becomes risky for people to follow it blindly for encouraging us to really look at using the tools and the data at our disposal to make effective decisions about our lives and our businesses, and also for talking about valuing independence and how to make that value come alive in uh, our work and our business. Thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you very much. Edward, where can we find out more about your work? You can find out about me at my website, edwardtenner.com. And what's the most important takeaway for someone who's reading and putting the ideas from the efficiency paradox to use? The most important thing for me about the efficiency paradox is not to be intimidated by people who claim that the human mind is going to be replaced by bots who claim that they know the future because they really don't. The most important thing to get from the efficiency paradox is that we're really much more smart and capable than Silicon Valley sometimes um, likes to uh, think of us. And if we have confidence in our ability to use technology as a tool, but only as a tool, we'll be able to get the most out of it. Thank you again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I'd appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments, and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.